0: to bread and thread i am hazel
1: and i'm not liz
0: (laughs) um you are hearing the dulcet tones of nick liz's spouse who is going to talk to us about a main topic today um which is exciting and new and well not new because uh they've been on the podcast before several times and done a great job so uh yeah it's gonna be a fun time <laughs> um, and I'm trying to think how to slot the rest of our normal introduction i, I guess we are two friends who met because of another friend who I studied archaeology with, <laughs> and both of us also like making things and baking things and history and um we we're going to talk about that today.
1: <laughs> we certainly are now. Uh, this week I have mostly been baking. Um, well, I just I just had a a uh, fairly simple tea, but with a little twist. We had mac and cheese, which is a simple staple, but we often like to use some sage derby in it. Oh. So sage derby, if you don't know, is a very creamy cheese with a bit of sage in it, and if you use it as a melting cheese, it makes everything turn green. Green mac and cheese. Yeah, we call it Shrek and cheese. (laughs) I think we shouldn't.
0: I was really into it until that.
1: Yeah, I I have regrets, but once you're in the swamp, you can't get out. I think that's the moral of Shrek.
0: This is my cheese. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I I think that is the the deeper meaning if you read between the lines. Yeah, um, that sounds delicious though. That is a good idea. That I was cracking.
1: And al- uh, also, what we've been doing because we used to put in a little bit of a little bit of nutmeg in uh, cheese sauces or white sauces because it's a nice compliment. Uh, instead, we because we have some mace instead, which is. Like okay. a little bit more more of a savoury type of nutmeg flavour. That's the other part
0: in. of the nutmeg, right?
1: Yeah. We've um, been using that instead, and so that mm. really kind of deepens the flavour, especially working with the sage. And of course, okay. a little dash of paprika.
0: Oh, of course. Ah, <laughs> oh, You guys are so good with the flavours.
1: Yeah, it's, it's mostly Liz. I like spicy things, and Liz makes things actually taste good.
0: Oh. But sometimes they can be good and spicy.
1: This is very true. <laughs> it's, the, it's the name of a restaurant I'm going to set up. Things have to be either good, spicy, or both.
0: <laughs> I reckon that could that could go pretty well.
1: So what have you been making or baking this week?
0: Uh, I have not again had that much time i did make some bangin flapjacks um we still had black currants in the freezer from last year so i made i just went around like what we had in the cupboard and i made some uh dark chocolate almond and black currant flapjacks and they were delicious but they sound banging yeah it was so good um i, I love a flapjack because it's pretty simple and you get to melt the golden syrup and the butter in together and that is fun Um, and also you can just put whatever you have in it and it will taste delicious and flapjacky that's
1: good i do like a good flapjack even a bad flapjack's okay
0: (laughs) so yeah that's pretty much it i've been knitting some socks um what is the flap
1: to jack ratio by the way
0: I think ideally. they have to be at least 60% jacked.
2: Okay. Some jacked flaps. Yeah.
1: Good to know. So you've been <laughs> making socks before I interrupted you.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, it was it was important information. Um, yeah, I've just, just been knitting some socks. I'm not a big sock knitter, but I was recently given some knitted socks um, by my boyfriend's mum and they're great, and it reminded me why I like hand-knitted socks, and now I'm making some. Uh, Yeah. So, what are we going to talk about today?
1: We're talking about that most beloved of inventions, the novel. It's one Hmm. of our, I think, after, um, yeah, TV, film, and video games, it's one of our newest one of our newer forms of entertainment
0: oh, how novel Hey.
1: Mm.
0: okay so the novel as a as a thing i didn't realize it was quite that new it's one of those things where
1: like like a lot of things in history um it's it's one of those things where it really depends like um it's a matter of kind of I guess codifying and uh and classifying sometimes. Like like for mm-hmm. instance when you did the um episode on where you talked about the ploughman's lunch, mm-hmm. having a bit of bread and cheese and and stuff like that, that's as old as the hills as as a practice. Yeah. But somebody putting it together and saying, that's what that's called. Um I have I have claimed this now everybody has to pay me when they call it that or whatever um i think that's the kind of just dist- part, partly the distinction we're looking at okay so um you can get prose stories that are like longer than a short story going back um well, about a couple of millennia you can get uh Ancient Greek and Roman stuff, like uh, Petronius's Satyricon, um, The Golden Ass by Apuleius, But um, essentially, you often get um, stories that are just, yeah, simple but longer than your average little, you know, campfire fable. They're a little bit more complicated in terms of the plotting, but not necessarily in terms of the emotional or psychological content. And that's that's where some people draw a kind of line and say, well no, a novel is where you have where it's a little bit more precisely uh, defined, there's a bit more craft in, at play, yeah. because that's just going from A to B to C, but over like 100,000 words instead of over 1,000.
0: Okay, that actually makes sense, I think. So like something with, I guess, more defined characters or more deeply fleshed out um, like descriptions and things.
1: Yeah, exactly, because you can get some um, yeah, like some some of those, like the Golden Ass and the Satyricon they are very um, very broad things in a way where the characters are often kind of perhaps like stock characters essentially mm-hmm. um, so it kind of resembles in terms of in terms of the tone something like kind of a Commedia dell'arte thing or okay. resembling some of the mythological or folkloric figures in other kinds of storytelling
0: Yeah, I guess when I think of the the older epic tales, I guess they they seem a bit more like you're not almost not meant to identify yourself with the characters. Like it's sort of a you're on the outside, like watching them or that like archetypes. Um, yeah, yeah. But I guess like a novel. Is something where I would read it because I want to, like, emotionally engage with the the characters and the setting and. Um,
1: Absolutely, I mean that's yeah. a huge part of how novels, I think, are, are marketed now and mm-hmm. and pitched to people. It's like, all right, everybody's heard every kind of, of plot before, but not every kind of of story. Um I can make that That distinction It's one I like that's very common in um Like you hear it in a, in creative writing classes And things like that Just plot is what happens The story is Kind of Yeah, plot is Spider-Man Fights and defeats the Green Goblin um, Once he's gotten his powers And learned how to use them Story is Spider-Man helps people because of his Uncle Ben and yeah I think it's when you get the story on top of the plot Um, that's very much a movement towards being a novel I think you can get emotions in every story
2: Mm -hmm.
1: definitely but sometimes it's like somebody reproducing a bit of classical mythology where a character says, oh, my um, my sweet lady, I loved you, but the gods have torn us apart, so I'm going to uh, jump off this cliff, and then eagles will eat my remains. It's like, yeah, that's an emotion, but it's incredibly cartoony. <laughs> it's, oh, and I, I spontaneously combusted, because I could not wed my, my true love.
0: Yeah, that's quite extreme.
1: Yeah, don't don't ask me to name one where somebody does that. It's. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there is it, one out there. You don't get spontaneous combustion in, in much literature until Dickens. Okay. But he uh,
0: spontaneously combusts in Dickens.
1: I Can't remember offhand, but I I know that. I know that it happened.
0: <laughs> that does sound memorable. Oh yeah. That's how
1: you win a chapter, but um...
0: (laughs) okay. So I've heard um, in regards to like the first novel, I guess that's probably quite ambiguous. But I've I've read like um, sort of theories that it's the Tale of Genji.
1: That is a good candidate. Yeah. Okay. I think because until fairly recently in like in Western literary criticism circles there's been like it has been quite insular and quite Eurocentric about the definition. I think, yeah, um Chinese and Japanese novels, um I think they do have a good claim to be the first
2: um the first proper novels. Mm-hmm.
1: I think, um, yeah, it's not sadly not an area I know enough about. Really, um, the those books, I'd love to love to go into more detail on them. Maybe, maybe I'll uh, go on a bit of a bit of a reading quest and come back when I, when I know more.
0: Well, ironically, the only reason I know about the Tale of Genji is because I read a novel about the author of the Tale of Genji. <laughs>
2: That's one way to learn about it. <laughs>
1: the um yeah, the one that people often point to and say, right, that right there, that is where it begins in the West is Don Quixote. Okay. Which I think is a really interesting point to start because um previously to that you've got um, your like big romances, the <laughs> tales of knights and everything like that in you know prose form and in poetry, you get the tale of Roland and King Arthur and Charlemagne, and you know knights real and fake, but all of their deeds are exaggerated. whether they're real or fake, it's always <laughs> a yeah. little bit much um, and so I find it really interesting that Don Quixote is because he is the he is a knight who is really influenced by those stories and they all go to his head and he goes a bit wrong because of it that's such a fun place to start to define the novel because that's not necessarily something you can imagine happening before you can imagine a character in um, in an ancient Greek story or an early medieval story maybe thinking that they are a better warrior than they are Like you can imagine a, a minor character in Chaucer being, um, calling himself Greg the Great, but then the Chaucer describes him as Greg the Coward. There's you can have that kind of, um, difference between somebody's own perception and reality. People get tricked all the time, there's spells being cast, and things like that. But the specific idea that this guy has done the equivalent. Of watching too much TV, that is such a shift, because it kind of, you're viewing this person not just as a character in a story, but as an active consumer of media and consumer of stories, which suggests a kind of interiority to him that you wouldn't have had before. Specifically, a kind of elaborate delusion that can only work if you really delve in deep, as Cervantes does, and explain his his inner workings.
0: Wow, so I haven't um, read Don Quixote. So can you? Um, when when did it come out?
1: That was be that would be sixteen oh five.
0: Okay. Oh well, that's that's actually earlier than I thought.
1: yeah cuz it was basically coming at the tail end of what has been a couple centuries long trend of um a lot of stories of daring do mm-hmm.
2: but also um it's
1: it's come after the a while after the advent of the of the printing press which i don't think you can really do um make something that big that isn't, like, literally the Bible without having a printing press to hand. Because a lot of people would say, what, you're just, you're just, um, Cervantes, you're just mocking people who like these stories for five, how many pages? 500 pages? And you want me to do that by hand? (laughs) Uh, no thank you.
0: That's a good point. I guess you can't really, um, Go into loads of detail about complex internal motivations across many many pages. Especially because having a ma- way of reproducing all that.
1: Especially because you get so many mistakes in there. Can you imagine making a typo when you're trying to discuss the inner workings of somebody's mind, <laughs> and then that somebody works off that copy when they're when it gets sent oh, somewhere yeah. else. So yeah, there's a kind there's a, a couple of different reasons um why this period is so good for creating um psychological complexity. So the um there's a lot of theorists of the early modern period that suggest it's when we where we get the concept of the public and the private sphere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think um Stephen Greenblatt has written a lot on that. It's a name I like saying. It's part of why I said that. <laughs> so it's a fun name. Um, it was a good name. Yeah, you get you get stuff like, uh, you know, this is a, this is a bit a bit of a gap, but uh, like Machiavelli, for instance, like uh, that's talking about private and public. Um, sort of presentation you know like being just a real um exemplification of being a wolf in sheep's clothing or uh or just how to betray people as a very like 101 super quick rundown of machiavelli but uh you know you can only you can only get there with a sense of that separation mm-hmm. i think and you can only get to the to the like psychologically mature novel, with that sense. So I think I think Machiavelli and Don Quixote
2: come from. Come from that same.
1: Same impulse to say, we've maybe got more. Partly we've got more privacy now. We've got uh, our lives are set up differently. You know we may not necessarily be. All sleeping in the same. Um, in the same room
0: mm, you can hide in a bedroom and read a book
1: yeah so in a world where you have different bedrooms as well you can have uh, Machiavelli and
2: you can have um, you can have the the
1: novel mm, okay. I just like poking around for tenuous materialist um, explanations for these things so. <laughs>
0: So, kind of, where does it go from there?
1: Well, um, you get a mix of things. So, about a century after, you get uh, Daniel Defoe, who made uh, Robinson Crusoe in 1719. And that's... um, You get a lot of stuff kind of like that, where there's more... There's more, like plenty of adventurous stuff, there's plenty of quite broad things but at the same time you'd get um, Aphra Ben who was a really interesting playwright and novelist um,
0: Yeah, I've heard of her as a playwright but I didn't realise she also wrote novels
1: Yeah, she wrote this book uh, Orinoco um, or The Black Caesar which is mm-hmm. a very kind of it's one of those things you only really read now if you're doing an English degree. But I did, so I read it, and it's mm-hmm. it's kind of um, yeah, like a, a very early attempt at writing about um, non-Euro- non-european people and cultures, which I think you know does get into some. Odd areas and gets kind of clumsy about it. Let's say, but it's another another sign of that um, that trajectory. The novel has a place to explore ideas and people. So you get that alongside the adventure stuff with Defoe, and Defoe also does things that are a little bit sort of a bit more in between. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, you start getting um sort of quite c- comedic novels or or picaresque stuff where it's you know I'm a young person is trying to start their life, but in in one book, they might be a woman with who has a kid young and has to become a courtesan, and then it's all of her adventures around town. Or there's um or a young man tries to find his fortune and maybe gets waylaid by bandits, but also there's some stuff in there about um about mingling with the nobility and a bit of social commentary, so it's like all aspects of history, it's not a straight line at all. you get a kind of meandering mix of um of big ideas of um very earnest, sentimental books about not being seduced by um, a terrible rake Um, you get Lawrence Stern who writes a kind of proto-postmodern book in uh, Tristram Shandy you get all sorts of things up until um, the the gothic novel and the country house novel which are kind Uh of quite close together in a way
2: Because the uh,
1: the gothic one is well it's a bit more a bit more shameful in some people's eyes. They like to say, Oh, I just found this manuscript of this uh of this silly dark story. Not my fault. If it's <laughs> if it's cheesy, it's not my fault. It's the manuscript. I found it. <laughs> and with uh
0: Yeah, I do <laughs> I do I like that. Those are somewhat controversial, especially for like young ladies being obsessed with these like gothic novels and um yeah, so there's a bit in Northanger Abbey about um, which is basically defending the the novel as an art form um against people who are like, well, it's just it's just like fluffy and um, ridiculous.
1: Yeah, you can tell how long it took for it to get acceptance because it took up until Jane Austen and later for people to go, okay, yes, it's a legitimate literary form.
0: I'm just imagining these like 18th century people like clandestinely reading reading their novels. Yeah, um, it was
1: not not class. It's like watching TV. <laughs> and because
0: these days. Yeah, basically.
1: It's, it's the equivalent of a, at some point in the 19th century they got HBO <laughs> or oh, like, oh yeah, okay, maybe this is good.
2: <laughs> I, I was... think
1: it was HBO in this case is like Flower Bear or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of, um, I can't remember where I saw it, but it, it was I was watching a documentary and they had a bit of um, filming people who were queuing up to buy Lady Chatterley's Lover when it was released in the uk in 1960 like the full version Mm -hmm. um which if you haven't heard of it before is um has sex scenes in it which was a big deal in the mid 20th century it's a kissing book (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and it was like there was a obscenity trial against the publisher Uh, but they were interviewing all these people in the line to get it and uh, (laughs) all of them were saying stuff like I'm buying it for a friend Uh, and there was this one young guy who was like yes I'm writing a um I'm doing a course on the modern novel and I'm uh, buying it for my dissertation (laughs) yeah so you are
1: like syllabuses catch up that quickly (laughs) <laughs> That's amazing There was one little um, Possibly um, poss- Possibly Exaggerated or Dubious anecdotes I, I heard from a lecturer which was it, I can't remember if it was This or Ulysses But it was one of the two sort of Big obscenity novels Of the 20th century And some barrister or something was just asked, would you let your servant read this
2: book? (laughs) Wow. So that's, that's
1: an interesting thing, isn't it? Because basically novels were kind of tawdry and low art and just cheap thrillers and and things like that Mm -hmm. and then they get acceptance and they kind of get properly codified as all right you've got something that's maybe a three-act thing maybe five acts and it's quite long and it tells an involved story and it's a very classy responsible thing and then you get into the tw- the 20th century and you get people experimenting with the form and coming out with stuff that's quite that's quite unusual and stuff that's sensitive subject matter and it's kind of like they have to reckon again all over again with with it as an art form and defend its worth all over again just as it's been established, basically.
2: Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think until... Yeah, I don't think there's really much
1: else that has to fight for its own uh, legitimacy quite so much for, um,
2: for quite as much of uh, of its history. That's the novel
1: you you get people having to argue like, "Oh, this game is really good, it's got really good um writing games can be art or um, and you've had to you've seen people say that about about t v
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I think that's kind of shifted quite quite quickly in favour of, like, yeah, okay, maybe. You know, people can say, all right, um, sometimes maybe some of the upper echelons, something like uh, Sopranos, The Wire, or Half-Life, sure, they can be art, and we're kind of happy to move along. But with the novel, it's kind of like having to make those over and over for about a thousand years before somebody says, <laughs> Yeah, okay, maybe maybe these are valid forms of expression,
2: <laughs> but yeah, uh, I guess, I guess every time there's sort of a new form of it,
0: it's it's like kind of has to has to become respected as its own thing i'm thinking particularly of like the, the development of fantasy as a genre um
1: oh yeah that's its own whole battle isn't it genre fiction specifically.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah sci-fi like different genres of novels which and so now we've got like literary fiction which is like okay oh this is the uh the classy novel and um, this is art high art and then. <laughs> things that are just meant to be enjoyable and not so artistic.
1: Yeah, it's interesting what gets called the literary novel when, really, unless it's a, a piece of, like, uh, postmodernism or a highly, um, you know, something very conceptual, then t- to me, I, I look at it and I think, well, that's just, that's just realism, that's just the realist novel. And I'm fine with it. I love mm-hmm. I love a realist novel because it's one of those things where defining things that are maybe mundane or smaller stakes and making them matter, that's a really good skill. Yeah. But it's a really weird label, literary fiction, because it denigrates the others and it doesn't tell you what the thing actually is.
0: Mm. Yeah, like what's the fiction about? <laughs> hmm. I want to know.
1: But uh, to to wrap up my thoughts, in the future, I think the novel will be edible. <laughs> Are you sure that hasn't already happened? Well, you can eat most things once.
0: Uh, technically, <laughs> yeah. I have to say, I think that the absolute peak of like literary art is the choose-your-own-adventure novel.
1: That is the culmination.
0: That's it. Like, it doesn't get better. It does
1: not. <laughs> RPG ideas should be good, right? But what this podcast supposes is, maybe they don't have to be. The Probably Bad Podcast brings you ideas like dire humans fight your GM in real life. And what if there is an eye laser man? Listen to the Probably Bad Podcast, available everywhere podcasts exist, and some places where they don't. So, uh, what is the local larder this week?
0: Um, yeah, so, I am gonna talk, I'm just, like, switching my brain from, like, trying to sound fancy and talking about literature <laughs> to <laughs> to foods. Um, yeah, I was gonna talk about Elderflower, actually, because oh. while, this is me segueing, while you're curled up with your novel outside in the sunshine you might like to enjoy a nice cool refreshing drink and that follows on nicely to elderflower um so i'm just going to talk a bit about elderflower as a flavor um cuz i think it's fairly popular across europe and i know that it's used in cocktails as well um quite often but um yeah i've not seen it so much in other places so i mean i don't know please let me know if you're listening and you're in a place that is not in europe and you have elderflower flavored things please let me know what they are that would be awesome um but yeah i know it as like elderflower cordial uh elderflower wine elderflower champagne um and I've even had elderflower fritters, which are delicious. Wow. You, you, can, fr- fr- so.
1: you can fritter anything. You, <laughs> Technically you money. can like
0: <laughs> You can put anything in batter and fry it. Um, but you probably shouldn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, they were they were really good because I was it went all it was like a thinner, slightly thinner batter and it was just all like The elderflower is really light and like frothy, and then it's like crunchy batter and it's very tasty. Anyway, (laughs) uh, the elder tree comes from the Saxon word "eld," and it's been um, it's been a tree that has grown like across Europe for um, millennia and it's been it's had many medicinal uses over the years um but you start to see recipes for the elderflower as like a flavoring um in cookbooks and things from the like 17th 18th century um so Hannah Glass's The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Simple has a recipe for elderflower wine. Um, and they're... Yeah, it's it's generally... It's a very, like, country flavour, I think, because um, elder trees are really common in hedgerows and um, woodlands and, like, you know, all around. Like, it's, it's really easy to gather and um, make things from. So it just... It just smells like summer to me Um, because the elder trees flower at the beginning of summer and it's just such a beautiful smell Um, and like normally we make elderflower cordial at that time which is delicious Um, just on its own or like in a gin and tonic. Really good. Um, Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I just really associate it with summer, which is why it sort of came into my head now. Um, and I have actually made Elderflower wine. Um, it was really good. Uh, in one of the books I have on country wines, um, it's, it's stated that Elderflower is like the only one that is as good as grape wine. But I've, I I've heard.
1: I've heard quite high praise for elderflower wine as, as a country mm-hmm. wine.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: yeah, I, I think viticulture is
2: its just one of those things where, yeah,
1: like changing the grapes makes a lot of difference to the, the flavor and there's not really a way to replicate that outside of getting those grapes and mm. doing it just like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Like... yeah and I think with the grape um wines, you don't really have to add a lot of like sugar or extra stuff because of that's kind of in the grapes already um whereas the a lot of the country wines are more like flavoring the mm. the alcohol that's being created by sort of added sugar but um Anyway, it tastes nice. <laughs> it's it's a nice like light wine. That's and the main thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's quite fun to make. Um, and it smells so good when you just have a whole basket of elderflowers. It's just, oh, delicious. Um, yeah. So I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but um. I would really like to know if um, there's any other elderflower-flavored related things out there. So please do let us know if yeah, that's se- the case.
1: Send us in elderflower ideas and also any country wine ideas you have, because I edit yeah. the show, so I'll get to I'll get to hear them if they're read out.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Oh, how's your brewing going, by the way?
1: Pretty good. I've been enjoying the fruits of my labour recently. I've uh the honey beer is aged nicely. Oh which is um I think it's come up on the podcast before. It's
2: mm-hmm.
1: a nice, um nice simple beer with mostly honey and a little bit of hops to make it not actually mead. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of like a nice, very sweet IPA. Oh and, that sounds good. Yeah, it's really good, and because I've had trouble getting the kind of level of of fizz right, because especially because making something fizzy and sealing it up is you're in the danger zone there.
2: Mm-hmm. I've
1: actually managed to get about the right amount with this, because what we did was we got it from a a book of like you know country wines and beers. And we have the amount of sugar it said to put in, so that's uh, ended up being about the right amount for like a nice, very subtle fizz. Okay. Because the, the last thing you want is to open a bottle and have it explode everywhere, as <laughs> it's I've had happen before.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you've just reminded me, actually, of the um, elderflower champagne um or sparkling wine i guess legally <laughs> um which apparently my granny used to make and i've always wanted to give it a go i think i did try but it didn't really i didn't really get any fizz but apparently the trick is to put an extra teaspoonful of sugar in um when you bottle it so that it just like keeps the fermentation just just going and you get the fizz
1: and that's a, a a teaspoon in per like what um
0: like per bottle.
1: Okay, and, that, and we're talking like wine bottle size, are we? I think so. Okay, good, because otherwise that's a lot of sugar.
0: Oh yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, I think I'm gonna wrap it up there. I think we we're on quite a good time. So. Uh, thank you very much for talking about the novel anytime <laughs> and um ah liz normally remembers all the things i'm not sure if i can remember them as well as they can but i'll give it a go <laughs> if you would like to send us uh, your favorite novels your favorite elderflower recipes you can do that at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com You can find us at Bread and Thread on Twitter, where we will have um, any pictures of things we talk about on the podcast, um, teasers for upcoming episodes, retweets, if you want to see the things that we retweet. Um, We also have a YouTube, Bread and Thread, which has audio versions of our podcast episodes, which some people prefer. Um, We've got a Patreon, which is also bread and thread where we will have monthly recipes and a discord server and oh we have tumblr which is unsurprisingly also bread and thread and we get pretty wild over there so yeah come see us it's
1: it's convenient it's bread and thread all the way down it's like an incredibly weird
0: rope (laughs) made of bread (laughs) follow the bread rope
1: they escape from bakery jail (laughs)
0: thank you very much for listening we will see you next time